Welcome to the August 10th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll learn more about what whole genome sequencing reveals about genetic subtypes of follicular lymphoma and risk of transformation, discuss the role of the lipid mediator, resolve in D4 in infectious neutrophil deployment and emergency granulopoiesis, and learn more about Hodgkin lymphoma-directed therapy and the role of PET in early-stage nodular lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin lymphoma. We first examine data in the blood article entitled Genetic Subdivisions of Follicular Lymphoma Defined by Distinct Coding and Non-Coding Mutation Patterns by Costantin Drivel from Canada's Michael Smith Genome Sciences Center at BC Cancer and Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, and colleagues. Follicular lymphoma comprises approximately 20% of all new adult lymphoma diagnoses and has the highest incidence in Western countries. It predominantly affects adults 60 to 65 years old. The median survival of patients with follicular lymphoma is greater than 15 years. However, approximately 8 to 15% will undergo histologic transformation to aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, or DLBCL, which has a poor prognosis. Since follicular lymphoma is considered manageable until patients experience transformation, identifying those at high risk of progression to DLBCL is of utmost importance. Studies to date have shown that there is a significant overlap in molecular features that act as drivers of follicular lymphoma and DLBCL, although some subtypes of follicular lymphoma also have distinct genetic features. These include BCL2 negative and pediatric cases. Several studies focused on identifying genetic changes associated with transformation of follicular lymphoma to DLBCL have found abnormalities affecting TP53, MYC, and CDKN2A genes in the period between diagnosis and transformation. However, it remains unclear whether the risk of histologic transformation is influenced by mutations present at diagnosis. Currently, there is no reliable model to predict poor prognosis in follicular lymphoma. The Follicular Lymphoma International Prognostic Index and a subsequent version that integrates genetic features have some prognostic value but are not consistent between studies. More recently, progression or relapse within two years after diagnosis was reported to be predictive of shorter overall survival in patients with follicular lymphoma. However, neither model can stratify patients based on the risk of subsequent transformation. The purpose of the current study was to comprehensively analyze whole genome sequencing data to compare the mutation landscape of untransformed follicular lymphoma, transformed follicular lymphoma, and de novo DLBCL. The analysis included sequencing data from 443 tumors representing 423 patients, all with matched normal genomes. The patient cohort included cases of untransformed follicular lymphoma, transformed follicular lymphoma, and de novo DLBCL. Significantly, mutated genes in protein coding and non-coding regions were detected and compared. Finally, the authors developed a machine learning-based classification model to stratify follicular lymphoma patients into subgroups based on the tumor's genomic features. The analysis revealed two genetically distinct subgroups of follicular lymphoma, which the authors named DLBCL-like follicular lymphoma and constrained follicular lymphoma. 
These two subtypes showed a 10-year difference in time to transformation. Each subgroup was characterized by differences in mutational signatures, mutated gene frequencies, gene expression, and translocations. For example, constrained follicular lymphoma patients had a lower mutational burden for aberrant somatic hypermutation, greater enrichment in RRAGC, ATP6V1BP2, and ATP6AP1 gene mutations, as well as missense mutations in CREB-BP involving its lysine acetyltransferase, or CAT, domain. In addition, constrained follicular lymphoma patients had a lower gene expression of MYC and a lower frequency of MYC translocations. Conversely, a higher incidence of aberrant somatic hypermutation was observed in DLBCL-like follicular lymphoma, especially in the transcription start sites of BCL6, BCL7A, ROH, and ZFPL36L1. Moreover, DLBCL shared similar mutations with DLBCL-like follicular lymphoma, including a higher incidence of GNA13 mutations and higher gene expression of MYC compared to constrained follicular lymphoma. A machine learning-based classification approach stratified follicular lymphoma patients into subgroups of constrained follicular lymphoma and DLBCL-like follicular lymphoma based on the tumor's genomic features. Using separate validation cohorts, the authors showed that constrained follicular lymphoma was associated with a reduced rate of histologic transformation to DLBCL. They concluded that constrained follicular lymphoma is characterized by distinct biological features that limit its evolution and can predict histologic transformation to DLBCL. In an accompanying commentary, James Fallon and Elaine Jaffe from the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, note that the findings of Drivel and colleagues highlight the overall similarity of mutation patterns between constrained follicular lymphoma, DLBCL-like follicular lymphoma, and germinal center subtype of DLBCL. They also further support the idea that follicular lymphoma represents the indolent counterpart of the EZH2 mutant, BCL2 translocated, or EZB, genetic subtype of DLBCL. Another notable finding was the enrichment of missense mutations in the CAT domain of CREB-BP within the constrained follicular lymphoma cases compared to nonsense and frameshift mutations in the DLBCL-like and DLBCL cases. The authors suggest that missense mutations in this specific CREB-BP domain, coupled with higher gene expression, limit histologic transformation. Interestingly, prior studies have found that higher expression of the MYC gene and more aggressive disease were associated with complete inactivation of CREB-BP. Phelan and Jaffe now hypothesize that CREB-BP missense mutations within the CAT domain may be a hallmark genetic feature of indolent follicular lymphoma and that they could potentially serve as a biomarker in clinical decision-making. The commentary authors conclude that additional studies with larger cohorts are needed to more closely define the genetic alterations that could predict the genetic subtypes of lymphoma. As machine learning approaches continue to evolve and expand their applications, it will be critical to thoroughly define the studied cohorts in order to obtain a comprehensive picture of the heterogeneity of follicular lymphoma. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Infectious Neutrophil Deployment is Regulated by Resolvin D4 by Stefania Libreros from Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts and colleagues. Neutrophils are the body's first line of defense against invading pathogens and are deployed from the bone marrow to peripheral blood in response to infection. 
During severe infections or tissue injury, neutrophils are consumed in greater quantities, and acute inflammatory signals cause increases in granulopoiesis in the bone marrow. The hematopoietic system rapidly adapts by switching from steady state to emergency granulopoiesis, thereby enabling the increased generation of large quantities of neutrophils from granulocyte-monocyte progenitor cells. The molecular signals that switch emergency granulopoiesis back to steady state have not been clearly identified, even though excessive neutrophil production is a hallmark of many inflammatory and autoimmune diseases. The resolution of acute inflammation is regulated via endogenous specialized pro-resolving mediators, or SPMs, that mediate a return to homeostasis. SPMs are comprised of structurally distinct families of lipid mediators, including lipoxins, E-series resolvins, D-series resolvins, protectins, and maresins. These lipids play critical roles in the host inflammatory response by promoting antimicrobial defense and phagocytosis, regulating trafficking into the inflamed site, and stimulating the clearance of leukocytes and cellular debris by macrophages. The current study aimed to compare the bone marrow lipid profiles of mice without infection and those with bacterial peritonitis in order to further delineate mechanisms involved in the resolution of infection and the host's deployment of neutrophils. Animal experiments were conducted in a mouse model of self-resolving E. coli peritonitis. At designated time intervals, exudates, whole blood, and bone marrow cells were collected from euthanized mice. Additional experiments included SPM-targeted metabololipidomics profiling, single-cell mass cytometry, or CYTOF, flow cytometry, ELISA, and bacterial titers. For studies in human cells, fresh bone marrow aspirates were purchased commercially and human peripheral blood was obtained from healthy volunteers. The findings revealed that emergency granulopoiesis triggered by peritonitis in mice evoked changes in bone marrow levels of resolvin D1 and resolvin D4. Namely, RVD1 levels were elevated during the early phase of peritonitis from 0 to 12 hours and remained elevated during the resolution phase from 24 to 72 hours. Interestingly, the levels of resolvin D4 stayed below baseline during the entire period. The distal infection increased the numbers of marrow pre-neutrophils, immature neutrophils, and mature neutrophils, along with an increase in the multipotent myeloid progenitors and granulocyte monocyte progenitors. RVD1 and RVD4 each limited the infiltration of neutrophils to the site of infection and differently regulated bone marrow myeloid populations. RVD1 increased reparative monocytes and RVD4 regulated granulocytes. Cytoff analysis of marrow cells revealed that RVD4 promoted hematopoietic cell differentiation towards B and T lymphocytes, as well as controlled granulopoiesis. As evident from downregulation of LSKs, GMPs, preneutrophil, and immature neutrophils. Furthermore, RVD4 also prevented excess neutrophil deployment, acting as a break on emergency granulopoiesis. When given together with E. coli, RVD4 increased bacterial clearance and stimulated whole blood neutrophil phagocytosis of E. coli, while accelerating neutrophil apoptosis and their clearance by macrophages via ephrocytosis, thereby expediting the resolution of inflammation. Studies in human marrow showed that RVD4 stimulated phosphorylation of regulatory proteins in pre-neutrophils, immature neutrophils, and neutrophils that are involved in granulopoiesis and neutrophil apoptosis, including MAP kinases and STAT3. 
And similar to mice, RVD4 enhanced human neutrophil phagocytosis of E. coli. Finally, resolvins signal through G-protein-coupled receptors, and additional studies in various receptor knockout mice led the investigators to infer that distinct receptors for RVD1 and RVD4 are involved. The authors concluded that together, these results shed new light on the functions of resolvins in granulopoiesis and neutrophil deployment. In an accompanying commentary, Janos Philep from the University of Montreal in Canada notes that the main implication of the findings by Libreros and colleagues is that RVD4 can ensure rapid resolution of infection and prevent injury to the host by controlling excessive neutrophil mobilization into the circulation and hematopoietic stem cell differentiation. The current study also demonstrates that RVD4 can enhance phagocytosis and ephrocytosis. These findings build upon the previous work of the Sirhan Laboratory focused on identifying functions of the superfamily of specialized pro-resolving lipid mediators, including resolvents. The authors now provide compelling evidence for the multifaceted actions of RVD4, which partly overlap with those of RVD1 and other pro-resolving lipids, but also include emergency granulopoiesis and prevention of excessive neutrophil mobilization. Philip also notes that additional studies are required to explore RVD4 signaling in hematopoietic stem cells and ephrocytic macrophages. Overall, he believes that these findings point to a potential therapeutic potential of RVD4 in various conditions, including severe sepsis, that are associated with excessive emergency granulopoiesis and neutrophil-mediated tissue injury. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled Interim Pet Guided Treatment for Early Stage NLPHL, a subgroup analysis of the randomized GHSG, HD16, and HD17 studies by Dennis Eichenauer from the University of Cologne in Cologne, Germany. Nodular lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin lymphoma, or NLPHL, is a rare form of lymphoma that accounts for approximately 5% of all Hodgkin lymphoma cases. Unlike classical Hodgkin lymphoma, NLPHL is characterized by CD20 positivity and lack of CD30 expression. Although the clinical course of NLPHL is mostly mild, approximately 5 to 10% of patients go on to develop aggressive B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma within 10 years from the initial NLPHL diagnosis. Thus, NLPHL resembles low-grade B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and the Clinical Advisory Committee has proposed nodular lymphocyte-predominant B-cell lymphoma as the alternative name for NLPHL. The standard of care for patients with stage 1A NLPHL is limited field radiotherapy, but there is no accepted standard of care for early stage NLPHL. Patients are mostly treated with regimens used for Hodgkin lymphoma consisting of brief chemotherapy followed by consolidation radiotherapy. Sometimes B-cell lymphoma approaches such as RCHOP or RCVP which include rituximab, are employed. Unlike in classical Hodgkin lymphoma, treatment stratification based on interim positron emission tomography, or IPET, is poorly defined for patients with early-stage NLPHL. The purpose of the current study was to shed more light on the characteristics and outcomes of patients with early-stage NLPHL who were treated with contemporary Hodgkin lymphoma-directed regimens and to uncover the role of IPET in managing these patients. The authors conducted a subgroup analysis of the randomized German Hodgkin study group HD16 and HD17 studies for patients with early-stage favorable and early-stage unfavorable Hodgkin lymphoma, respectively. 
The analysis included a total of 100 patients with newly diagnosed NLPHL treated in the scope of the GHSH, HD16, and HD17 studies. These studies examined the omission of consolidation radiotherapy in patients with a negative iPET scan at the end of chemotherapy. Early favorable stage was considered stage 1-2 without clinical risk factors. Early unfavorable stage was considered stage 1-2A with at least one of the risk factors, such as large mediastinal mass, extranodal disease, elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate, or involvement of three or more nodal areas, or stage 2B with either elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate or involvement of three or more nodal areas, or both risk factors. Patients with classical Hodgkin lymphoma treated in the scope of the same studies served as reference cohorts. In the HD16 study, patients were treated with chemotherapy consisting of two cycles of ABVD. In the HD17 study, chemotherapy consisted of two cycles of escalated BCOP plus two cycles of ABVD. An IPET was performed after chemotherapy and considered negative if a Deauville score was less than 3. Progression-free survival and overall survival served as the main endpoints. Of the 100 patients with NLPHL, 85 had early-stage favorable and 15 had early-stage unfavorable disease. Patients with early-stage favorable disease were compared to 495 patients with classical Hodgkin lymphoma, and those with early-stage unfavorable disease were compared to 764 patients with classical Hodgkin lymphoma. 72.9% and 51.3% of patients with NLPHL and classical Hodgkin lymphoma were male, respectively. The five-year progression-free survival rates of patients with NLPHL treated within the HD16 and HD17 studies were 90.3% and 92.9%, respectively. The five-year progression-free survival did not differ significantly between patients with NLPHL and those with classical Hodgkin lymphoma treated in the scope of the same studies. Of note, patients with early-stage favorable NLPHL who had a negative IPET after two cycles of ABVD and did not receive consolidation radiotherapy had a worse progression-free survival than their counterparts who received consolidation radiotherapy, 83% versus 100%, respectively. Overall, nine patients from the HD16 study and one patient from the HD17 study had a recurrence, but there were no deaths during the follow-up period. Taken together, these findings indicate that contemporary Hodgkin lymphoma-directed treatment approaches represent plausible treatment options for patients with newly diagnosed early-stage NLPHL and yield excellent outcomes. And for patients with favorable NLPHL, consolidation radiotherapy appears necessary to achieve optimal disease control, irrespective of the IPET result. In an accompanying commentary, Daniel Molin from the Uppsala University in Uppsala, Sweden, notes that the study by Eichenauer and colleagues demonstrates that contemporary Hodgkin lymphoma-directed treatment is highly effective in newly diagnosed NLPHL. Although the findings of the study are novel and describe modern therapy not previously evaluated for NLPHL, there are caveats, of which the most important one is the fact that NLPHL is already treated as an indolent B-cell lymphoma in many countries, using a rituximab and radiotherapy-based approach. This strategy has proven to be significantly less toxic than treating all patients with chemotherapy. Moreover, the optimal chemotherapy regimen for NLPHL still needs to be defined. Although ABVD has been used the most widely, Molin notes that biologically, it is not rational to use Hodgkin lymphoma-directed chemotherapy instead of indolent B-cell lymphoma-directed chemotherapy 
which may provide better results. He concludes that there is an ongoing need to test potential new therapies in an international randomized trial in patients with NLPHL. Although, given the rarity of the disease, it would take a substantial amount of international effort to achieve. Finally, in relapsing NLPHL, it will be of interest to evaluate standard and experimental indolent B-cell lymphoma-directed approaches beyond single rituximab and radiotherapy, such as R-bendamustine, BTK and PI3K inhibitors, as well as bispecific antibodies and CAR T-cells. This could be achieved by including NLPHL patients in relapsed refractory indolent B-cell lymphoma trials. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.